Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is The Science of Motherhood. Of Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White, and my co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is just coming back from maternity leave, so she'll be joining us for a few episodes when she can... I don't know, juggle another ball in the air um, in between being a mum and a businesswoman and all of those wonderful things. We are the dynamic duo from Fill Your Cup Postpartum Doulas. We have um, an FYC doula village with a wonderful bunch of women who we work with. So a big shout out to Georgie and Amanda and Samara and Kate and Caitlin. And we are postpartum doulas who work across Melbourne and Hobart. So if you are in one of those regions, say a big hello to us, send a DM on Instagram, let us know how you're going in your pregnancy and postpartum. So as postpartum doulas, what is a postpartum doula? We're going to do some content around this because I think there's maybe some misnomers. I think when we first joined the industry and when we Mika and I first quit our jobs as scientists and I was an attorney at the time, people were a little bit perplexed as to what a doula was. And essentially it is a non-medical professional who comes and visits your house when you have had a baby and we cook you beautiful, nourishing food and we sit with you and we talk about your birth and your challenges that week, whether it be emotional or feeding, practical support, we tidy up around your house. We are essentially the village that we have lost <laughs> here in the Western society. So if you are in need of some support, whether that be you don't have any family and friends nearby or you do, but kind of they've got their own lives and so you're not really sure how consistent that type of support's going to be. Or a lot of our mamas, they run their own business or their partner runs their own business and so they don't have time for parental leave. Please feel free to reach out to us so we can have a chat about how you can be supported in your postpartum. We always plan for the birth, but we never or very rarely kind of think about how we're going to survive after the baby's here. So we're at ifillyourcup.com or DM us on Instagram at fillyourcup underscore. We'd love to have a chat with you. And we've got some really exciting things coming up in the next few months. So it's currently the start of June 2022. If you're listening to this in the future, hopefully we're still doing this. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But we are going to be releasing our very first range of FYC products. And first cab off the rank is going to be our signature dark chocolate and goji lactation cookie mix. Now, we all know that 
I don't know about you, but lactation cookies that are pre-made in plastic sitting on the shelf for I don't know how long. I actually had a mum the other day say to me, oh, I I bought a um, container of these lactation cookies and they're on the bottom shelf and I literally had to dust off the dust and she was just like, I just got them because I felt like I just needed to have them straight away. But we are going to be launching our cookie mix at the end of July. We are taking pre-orders. If you would like to be part of that wait list and pre-order that VIP pre-order, we're going to be sending out, and this is exclusive to our email, email list only, an exclusive discount for our launch to say thank you for supporting us. And you're probably thinking, what is so fabulous about this this cookie mix, Renee? What is going on here? Let me tell you a little bit about it. It is the perfect 3 a.m. snack. They can be made and ready in 15 minutes. They are high in protein, all organic ingredients, which I think I could count on like a couple of fingers how many um, products there are out there with all organic. Because, you know, what you feed your body, you feed your baby. And these are going to be your go-to one-handed snack to help nourish your body while you're nourishing your baby. So our cookies have a rich dark chocolate and sweet goji berry. It's kind of set in an oat-based cookie. And they've got a signature combo, which is our chia, maca and flax, and they assist with hormone regulation and digestion and milk production as well. So the concept is literally rip, tip and pour into a bowl. You add about half a cup of melted coconut oil and two large eggs. We've designed the recipe such that you can riff it if you're vegan and you can omit the two large eggs and just substitute with water instead. They are equally as delicious. We have road tested this (laughs) so many times because we wanted to make sure that everyone has access to this wonderful, wonderful product. So if you are looking for a beautiful, nourishing snack for yourself, or they're a great gift idea as well. They're going to be retailing for around $24 a pack, which if you um, go and do some market analysis, these packs are going to be around 640 grams. So you get about 12 cookies. They're on the larger (laughs) end of the scale when it comes to cookie mixes because Mika and I, we're both European in background, so we have no idea how to cook for a small crowd, let's just say that. So if you would like to get your hands on the pre-order of these cookie mixes, please head over to our website, ifillyourcup.com forward slash contact. And in the little contact box, just fill in your name and your email. And in the message, just say, add me to the cookie list. And we will add you to that cookie list and you will get an exclusive discount when we are taking pre-orders in July end of July. And then we will be shipping probably two and a half, three weeks after that. So let's get to the business end of this podcast. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Renee Jennings from Nurture the Seed. 
which you probably will all be familiar with. They are a dynamic duo as well, Renee and Georgia. And I had the pleasure of talking to Renee, who's a registered dietitian, about gestational diabetes, which is something that you will hear. (laughs) I, you know, quite open and honestly talk about the fact that I know very little about that. And so it was amazing to have her on the podcast just to kind of pick her brain and talk about everything from the basic, what is it, what happens in our bodies, how does that all kind of eventuate what the risk factors are, how do we manage our blood sugar levels if we're diagnosed with something like that, what are the long-term effects both for mama and bubs, and then we actually very much deep dive into testing because I, for one, and I do not think I'm alone on this, absolutely despised the glucose tolerance test. I had to take a day off work. It was disgusting. It made me feel incredibly ill. And on top of that, like just being a pin cushion, you know, and having to have blood drawn multiple times over a short amount of time was quite distressing for me. I've got terrible veins and it was not lovely at all. And so we deep dive into some alternative testing or a bit more of an economical um, testing. And then we talk about diet. So, you know, the types of things that Renee would make recommendations for with her particular patients if they come into the clinic. So Renee is, as I said, a registered dietitian. She completed her Master's of Dietetics in 2011 and she's worked across a variety of hospitals in both New South Wales and WA. But as she, you can tell from the interview, her passion lies with maternal, infant and child nutrition as well as food sustainability. And she's a mama. She's a mama as well. So she totally gets it. And I talked to her about this, you know, what's her origin story? How did, how did all of this kind of start to pique her interest? Was it pre, you know, babies and, and how does that all work? And I love hearing about people's origin stories. I think it's so fascinating to understand where everyone's coming from and and how they funnel that into what she's now made as her daily job that she's doing. And Renee, you can definitely tell she just wants women to be confident in their prenatal as well as pregnancy and postpartum nutrition and being able to empower them with that knowledge of how to nourish their bodies with delicious food is like absolutely at the forefront. And so that is where we definitely (laughs) come together and share similar visions and missions for women's health. So Without further ado, here is Renee from Nerd to the Seed. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Renee from Nerd to the Seed. It's like Renee squared. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) How are you going today? I'm good. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, I am... I love your podcast and, yeah, the very scientific approach it takes to pregnancy and motherhood. So being a bit of a science nerd myself, I, yeah, I've always really loved it. So I'm, I'm very excited to be here today. Oh, thank you. That's super sweet. We, we do our best <laughs> to entertain and educate all at the same time. So <laughs> we, hope, yeah. we hope people get giggles, but also um, 
are empowered by the educational content that we're trying to like put through. Yeah, so as I said, you're, you're from Nurture the Seed. Tell us all about that. So you've got a sidekick, as do I, Mika. Who is your sidekick and where did you meet? How did Nurture the Seed like come about? Yeah, so good question. Nurture the Seed is a, basically a passion project that I started with one of my best friends who is a, a teacher actually and it uh, we started it when we had children and we wanted to write a book on prenatal nutrition. So it's kind of been a project we've been doing on the side where we're trying to provide evidence-based information in that space because a lot of the information is very outdated and very fear-based. So we're trying to lighten that a little and provide some recipes. So Nurture the Seed started about three years ago maybe and we finally finished writing our book earlier this year, which which was, yeah, we were very stoked about that. So it's about a 300-page hardcover book that goes through a lot of detail of pregnancy and nutrition. It's got 35 recipes. It goes through a lot of the misnomers of pregnancy. So, yeah, that's kind of what Nurt to the Seed is. But now I guess that we finished the book, we're continuing that space to provide education to women. But I also work in as a clinical dietitian in prenatal um, as a prenatal dietitian alongside some obstetricians in Wollongong. So I guess I also use it to provide further information about, you know, for care of women in pregnancy. Mm, definitely. And so obviously dietitian, but you guys are both mums as well. So I'm sensing that, you know, was it during your pregnancy or postpartum, did you think, hold on a minute, like, what is going on here? Like, when was the exposure and that, like, bulb moment of, like, what's happening? Like, Mika and I are the same. Where is all this misinformation coming from? What is going on here? Let's try and bridge that gap. What, yeah. Was there, well, like, a moment in time for you both where you were kind of chatting to one another going, did you read that or did you see that or whatever? Kind of. For me, it actually started when I was a new grad graduate dietitian I was working in pediatrics and I just had this moment when I I was working with them I think I was seeing a, a pregnant woman and I just felt like we weren't really giving her the best care I felt like we weren't really educating her on foods we were just it was all about supplements and I don't know it was just all very fear-based the information I I just had this moment of hang on a moment are, is it possible to meet our nutritional needs in pregnancy from diet alone? And, you know, how do we get rid of this fear? So it actually started for me about 13 years ago. And I used to just keep a, in my notes in my phone, I used to keep jotting down things that I think I would like to put in this book. I also love food and love recipe development. So I just had in my head, I was just going to write a book one day. And I told my friend Georgia about it. Because she, yeah, she's a very good writer and she also has a big interest in food and her sister's a dietitian. So there was just a lot going on there. We, the planets um, were aligning, Renee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I, I literally, I barely did a thing on it for, you know, 10 years. And I thought if I was going to do it, I would do it when I was pregnant. But when, when I was pregnant, I was just overwhelmed by working full time and, you know, everything else that went with pregnancy and I never got a chance to write it. And then when I had my baby, I think I was nine weeks postpartum 
and I called Georgia and I said, do you remember that book idea and do you want to do it? And she was like, yeah, keen. So we just did it. (laughs) Oh, I love, I love hearing about those stories because, you know, behind every business there is a face, you know, and there's a personal journey. And I just wanted to share something with everyone. When I was researching you both, I found on your website, Renee, that you had written in your About Us section that growing up food and cooking was central to our family and still is. It was my mother's means of expressing her love and I have inherited this trait. And I had, I, I still have goosebumps <laughs> what, like reading that out because that is me to a T. And <laughs> for all those playing at home, we were joking off air that Mika and I were chatting And she's like, oh, my God, they're exactly like us. (laughs) And I love that. I love these stories about how it all came together because, you know, for people like you and Georgia and myself and Mika, yeah, we're running a business and, yeah, we're making money, but we're not doing it for the money. We see a gap in education and empowering women and I love the fact that you have been collating notes for that long, like, That says so much about the system in which our women are put in and I love the fact that you're like, no, we can do better. So bravo to you. (laughs) Thank you. I love it. I love it. Now we are going to talk about, we're going to niche down and an area of interest and passion that you have is gestational diabetes. Now, hand on heart, I honestly don't know a lot about this topic. And I was kind of researching a little bit. I was fortunate enough not to actually have it. I think, you know, the closest I came was that regulatory glucose test, which is just disgusting. Not nice either. Oh, I ended up having a day off work because I was like, I can't go to work after this. This is awful. Yeah, I know a lot of people who have a day off work, either for the test or the day after. 100%. And um, I have terrible veins, like horrific. I can drink four litres of water, have a really warm coat on, and seriously, I get in there and they are tapping my arm. (laughs) They go on both arms. And I remember the experience being quite traumatic, having to have those needle after needle after needle. It was not not pretty at all. So, and I don't think I'm alone either. No, I definitely <laughs> don't think you are. So we're going to kick <clears throat> off with just the basics. For people like myself and others who are just not really familiar with gestational diabetes, I think we're very familiar with diabetes and the fact that, you know, insulin needs to be regulated and things like that. But what is gestational diabetes? How is that different to, you know, a type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Yeah. So there's a few different definitions. So the the definition that's used by like the World Health Organization and some of the international uh, diabetes in pregnancy study groups is Technically, glucose intolerance with onset or first recognition during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I guess another way that to say this would be high blood, uh, high, blood glu- high blood sugar or high blood glucose that develops or is first diagnosed during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, we've kind of got two 
things going on here. We've got um, we've got the fact that we're going to pick up women who have undiagnosed pre-existing, yeah, undiagnosed pre-existing diabetes or pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's first picked up during pregnancy, it's called gestational diabetes. And then you've got those that actually develop it during pregnancy. Okay. So, yeah, essentially they're going to all get grouped together. I, I kind of prefer the first definition of glucose intolerance because it actually gives women a little bit more of an understanding of what that actually means because mm-hmm. high blood sugar doesn't mean a lot to some people. So, yeah, putting aside the actual de- definition, what, what this kind of means is that when we eat carbohydrates, we release a hormone that's called insulin. And that insulin actually removes sugar from our bloodstream and it moves it to the cells where it's needed. Now, when we are pregnant, we naturally develop a level of insulin resistance. So what happens is our placental hormones, they essentially kind of block insulin from doing its job. And it's actually a bit of a phenomenon of pregnancy. So our body is trying to give nutrients to our baby rather than to us. And the way that we would overcome that in a normal pregnancy is that our body just produces more insulin. So Mm. I guess as your pregnancy progresses, we do become more insulin resistant, but then technically our body should produce extra insulin so that our blood sugar should remain in the normal range. So it's predicted that when you're pregnant, you produce about two to three times more um, insulin than a non-pregnant person. So yeah. Yeah. But I guess what happens is that in many women, this adaptation doesn't quite go as planned. So which basically just means that the hormones are quite strong and that we just can't keep up with that higher insulin demand. So what we'll see there is a elevation in blood sugar levels, or it's also known as hyperglycemia. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't appreciate that. That Because I was thinking there's got to be a reason. So, so what's happening is the insulin's being produced, yep. but it's being, so sorry, it's being blocked. Kind of. It's like your uh, pro- like a feedback your loop type thing. Yeah. Placental yeah. hormones are kind of not enabling the insulin to do its job properly. So we're still producing it. It's just that we're unable to use it in the same way as normal. So it's uh, it's like we can only utilize some of the insulin when they're producing. Yeah. So okay. by producing more and more of it, we can still get rid of the sugar in the blood. But gotcha. if that if that doesn't quite go as planned, and there's many reasons why that might happen, then the your sugar levels would just keep rising because your insulin isn't quite being able to do its job properly. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's all for the good of the baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like it all comes down to, yep, the baby's just sucking the life out of me again. <laughs> Literally from day one, those uh, little cute little things inside us, uh, yeah, definitely uh, we're caring from them from the moment we conceive or beforehand. And that is why once we birth our children, those who have gestational diabetes, it kind of dissipates and things start to regulate back to normal. Is that correct? That's correct for those who develop it during their pregnancy. That's right. Okay, good. That subgroup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I guess if it if it was potentially picked up in pregnancy but there was already a bit of pre-diabetes going on, then it might not disappear after pregnancy. Gotcha. Okay. Crystal clear now. Thank you for explaining yeah, it's, that. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> difficult definition and I think people get very confused that we don't produce insulin during pregnancy or that 
our sugar levels are just meant to be high, but it's not, there's a bit more to it and it is a little bit complicated. Yeah, yeah. I remember back in the day, <laughs> like biochemistry 101 days, you know, learning about the insulin and glucose um, feedback loops and things like that. But uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't think women's health was on the agenda either. Surprise, surprise. So we didn't learn anything about gestational diabetes or if there was, it might've been like a token sentence in the giant big book. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so all right, so now that we're talking about like subpopulations, mm-hmm. do we niche it down even further? Are there people who are predisposed? Like, are there mm-hmm. risk factors? You know, are there people who are listening to this podcast who, you know, could possibly, can you get pre tested for these types of things? Um, kind of in, I guess you can find out if you have, if you already have some sort of pre existing um, insulin resistance which we might also refer to as pre-diabetes. But the main kind of risk factors or subpopulations that are more at risk of gestational diabetes are mothers kind of over the age of 35. So as we, or some even say over the age of 25. So what What? we know is, yeah, I know, crazy. (laughs) So what we know is that as we age, that insulin resistance does increase. So the older we are, the more chances of our kind of insulin not doing its job as well. Mm-hmm. We also know that those who are overweight and obese, like a BMI of over 30 or so, uh, that that will increase your risk. So, yeah, there was a study done, I think it was uh, back in 2011 maybe, that showed, I'm sure there's many studies, but that showed that about 75% of women who have gestational diabetes were overweight or obese preconception. So that's why you often... Yeah, see a lot of information around that as well. And the reason for that is that adipose tissue actually it increases, uh, releases more fatty acids and hormones and kind of inflammatory, yeah, things that can actually develop, involved in that development of insulin resistance as well. Okay. And are people, like, are people still using BMIs? Like oh. I've, seen, I've seen a lot of commentary around the fact that, it, that in and of itself is a very outdated kind of guideline. What, yeah, look, what's, what's going on in the profession? Are we canning that, the BMI? Uh, like unfortunately not. I'm, I, I don't Maybe love... we should have a campaign, Renee. <laughs> cancel. If we're going to be cancelling things, we're going to cancel the BMI. I know. I just don't like, um, look, this is probably a whole other conversation, but I think that um, <laughs> focusing on weight isn't where we should be like yes we know that it's a risk factor but telling someone and I see this all the time telling someone who is trying to conceive that they need to lose weight is by far not the way to go about it it increases stress and everything like that so although we know it is a risk factor I don't think we're doing that very well at the moment so it's definitely something that as a society we need to do a lot better and I also like I don't know whether this is controversial, but I feel like, like they know that, like that's that's, I like, know. that's like saying to someone, those those cigarettes they'll kill you. It's I know like, exactly. They right. know that they they yep. know that that it like that they're in that that's knowledge that they have. Exactly. And, but then it comes back to like, what are we classing as overweight? What are we classing as obese? Like, what are and and at the end of the day, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure you can do this because. I have a couple of friends who have. 
you can reject the glucose test and say, I'm not doing it. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can reject anything that's really yeah. uh, given to you in, like, as in, in pregnancy and lots of tests. But, yeah, going back to weight, I've never actually weighed a single client in my clinic since working in the prenatal space. I, I just love don't, that so much. I, <laughs> I don't really see how it benefits. So, yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a whole that's other so conversation. Good. Yeah, that's but, a whole other conversation, which is we like I do this with everyone. I'm like, that's in the part two. <laughs> okay, so risk factors, are, you know, yep, BMI right. over 35. That's, yep. We're so just not even going to go also, there. So PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yep. Not everyone with PCOS, but uh, um, a proportion of people with PCOS also have insulin resistance. So mm-hmm. that puts them, they've already got yeah, that level going into pregnancy. So that's another reason. Having a history of GDM or a large for gestational age baby in a previous um, pregnancy or birth is another risk factor. A previous miscarriage or stillbirth. Any family history, like immediate family history of type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Ethnic origins, so including Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders, they have a much higher risk. And so do some medications. So your corticosteroids and antipsychotics can also wow. affect your risk. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Yeah, so there is there is quite a lot of you know I'm sure most people fall into one of those categories. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so why like managing blood sugar levels? Like, why does that matter? Like, what are the possible consequences yeah. if we don't control those sugar levels during pregnancy? Yeah, so managing blood sugar levels is in the normal range is uh, it's very beneficial for mum and bub. So we now have a lot of research to show the consequences of a of consistently high blood sugar levels in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these results came out of, I don't know if you're familiar with the HAPO study, the, which is hypoglycemia adverse outcomes in pregnancy. It was a huge okay. study that was done in 2008. It, it basically paved the way for the diagnostic criteria for GDM in pregnancy worldwide. It's a yeah, fascinating study if you want to link it in. Yeah, we'll to put the, that in the show notes. Thank to you. the show notes. Yeah, yeah. It was done like in many different countries and yeah, the results have basically yeah, changed the way we diagnose GDM worldwide. So what what we now know if I I'll start with bub. So because you know high blood sugar levels in pregnancy can first of all lead to a higher birth weight or what we call macrosomnia. Somnia, sorry. I love so, that, I love that they've got a technical word for like everything. I know, right? <laughs> everything. Macrosomnia. You got a big baba. I know. Half the time I can't even pronounce the words, but yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is yeah. Th- this happens because insulin being a it's it's actually a hormone that tells our body to store fat. So if your baby is continuously exposed to lots of um, sugar from the cord, it will produce its own insulin, which therefore means it'll store extra fat. So it'll grow a bit bigger. So that's how it gets too big. And I guess that uh, being a big baby can then lead to birth injuries like shoulder dystocia. Sorry, I can't pronounce that one very well. (laughs) Basically just means, yeah, their, their upper body's a bit bigger and it might lead to more chances of needing assistance in birth like forceps or suction or a c-section that's why yeah you'll see higher rates of cesarean birth another thing that can happen is if the barbie is continuously exposed to that high blood sugar 
and it's producing its own insulin, when the at birth, when the cord is cut, because it no longer has that sugar supply, what happens is that because it's still got the insulin going, it will actually drop its blood sugar, which is uh, means it could go into a hypoglycemic event at birth. So that's oh. pretty pretty serious event where yeah, a bub will have to get you know they'll give a uh, it'll usually be in the NICU for that, so it can produce produce that. Another thing is that we see more premature birth from women who have higher blood sugar levels in pregnancy, some congenital abnormalities, uh, respiratory distress, so some underdeveloped lungs. Yeah, so I guess a lot of these things do often lead to a ICU admission, Mm -hmm. which is just so distressing for parents. So yeah, they're like the short-term kind of issues and long-term, yeah, we're seeing uh, lots of correlation between childhood obesity, type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease later in life for bub. Um, and can I ask, yeah. and you may not know this kind of statistic, but I'm just mindful of the fact that, you know, when we talk about continued exposure, are we talking about yeah. things like, you know, mum's not aware that she may have GDM and therefore everything's to the wind and, you know, what will be will be? Or are we talking about, you know, mum knows that she's got GDM and she's trying to manage it as best as she can and she, but she's always in that upper range. Like, you know, where are we talking about in terms of this range that, you know, are, are causing these effects? Like is it, yeah, is it a small fold increase in, in um, blood, clo- blood glu- glucose levels or? Yeah, well, but to be honest, we probably don't have a definitive answer on that. I have read some studies that, have shown that even very slight elevations in blood sugar levels, we are seeing some adverse outcomes for. Mm -hmm. But I I think most of the research is kind of pulled from looking at the old guidelines in pregnancy, which were very similar to non-pregnant women and seeing the adverse effects from that. So that was more from, I guess, looking at higher blood glucose levels, which is why not long ago we've kind of changed and lowered our criteria for for GDM. So yeah, I'd say it's probably one of those things we don't have an answer for, but there is some evidence to say that even very slight elevations in blood sugar level, we are seeing some adverse outcomes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. And then for mum, like what are the consequences for uncontrolled sugar during pregnancy? Yeah. So uh, preeclampsia, preterm birth, as I kind of said before, cesarean section delivery a lot of probably one of the things that I see the most is just the psychological distress of either a having the diagnosis and yeah b just kind of how that yeah makes them feel and then yeah long term we're seeing the development of type 2 diabetes later in life so I know that that it sounds very scary when we talk about you know the risk factors as well as you know these outcomes that can happen but I guess what I'd like to focus on is just the fact that if we manage our blood sugar levels in the normal range, we can actually reduce or eliminate these risks altogether. So it it sounds very doom and gloom when we say it like this, but really making changes to our diet, our lifestyle, or using medication, we can actually provide, you know, mums and bubs with a very good outcome. Yeah, 100%. And we're going to touch on that in a minute, but Mm. going back to your point around just that emotional and mental Mm. kind of you know, effects on mums. I had a friend who was diagnosed with GDM and that was by far 
the number one issue for her. Like the fact that she was like, I'm healthy, you know, I've done I've done something wrong. Mums always flick back to that. I just want to be a good mum, the better mum, the best mum that I possibly can be. And when, you know, you're diagnosed with GDM, they they constantly think that, you know, I've done something wrong, I'm going to hurt my baby, you know, whatever the case may be. And you're 100% right. It's like I'm sure they're all like she received like, you know, this pamphlet and her doctor was like, you know, these are all the things that could go wrong and blah, blah, blah. And you put like the fear of God into you. I'm not religious, but the fear of God into you. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, it's okay. Like we've got medical advances. We understand a lot about this disease and yeah. so it can be managed through diet and lifestyle and things like that. So Yeah, and also that we're just... I, I, you know, it's not the women's woman's fault that they have gestational diabetes. Yes. It's such a, um, it's such a complicated, you know, multifactorial situation that happens. And to be honest, I don't, I don't particularly love the the term or the actual diagnosis that this GDM that we put on women. Like, I wish we kind of just took away the actual term and more just treated it as a side effect. You know, if someone has hyperglycemia in pregnancy, this is what we do. So I think we really, yeah, I I do feel like it does cause a lot of guilt and shame in mothers, um, but it really doesn't have to, uh, I, I try to not focus on that that at all because it's not, it's not their fault and we can, we can do some really great things to help them along the way. Okay. So let's talk about testing. Mm-hmm. As I flagged in the beginning, it's disgusting. I honestly, like, as much as I said before, you know, we've got technological advances and, you know, this is great, but I really feel like we are stuck in, like, 1925 or something when it comes to this glucose testing. It is awful, like, beyond awful. It is – and do you know what? Actually, I'm going to flag at this point. No one ever said to me – like, the, you know how there's fasting, there's mm-hmm. fasting beforehand, but no one ever said to me, you know, the day before, don't go out and eat six donuts. You know, like, just be mindful or just make sure that you eat what you normally eat because <laughs> I know people who've, like, gone, they're like, oh, yeah, I had, like, I went to this beautiful patisserie, like, the day before and just completely carb-loaded and what have you, and then it's gone pear-shaped and they've had to retest, which... I think would honestly be my worst nightmare. Like I hated it. And in my research, I found this other test that is quite possibly available and I need your thoughts and insight on this, but it's called Mm -hmm. hemoglobin A1C testing. And the thought process is that you could get it done in those initial blood work panels that we typically do to determine, like to 100% determine that we're pregnant. Well, I had to Mm -hmm. anyway, you know, pee on the stick. Okay. Now go to your GP, get your, get your blood work done. Da 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 da. Surely they could integrate that. It's very accurate. According to my research, what was it? Um, 98.4% accuracy. 
Have you heard of this testing? Do we have it in Australia? WTF, why are we not doing this? <laughs> um, <laughs> lots to take on in this question. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm going to, and to our cancel list, I've put down BMI and I'm also cancelling glucose testing. As That's going to be part of my campaign. BMI and glucose testing can get the big fat bird from me as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, so the glucose tolerance test that you're referring to, uh, it's called the GTT or the OGTT. Or I the guess... OTT, over the top. Actually, <laughs> OTTT, over the top testing. It is BS. That's what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, like you're right. It's not, it's not 100% accurate like many tests that we kind of do and some women find it very horrible. I I personally declined it in my second pregnancy. Um, Good on you. I, I had it in my first, but, yeah, a few reasons for that, I guess. So I guess for those who don't know, the glucose tolerance test is, is kind of the standard, the gold standard for diagnosing gestational diabetes. It's usually performed somewhere around the 28-week gestation mark because that's where we see insulin resistance kind of ramping up. Mm-hmm. And as Renee explained, you turn up fasting and then you have to actually take a 75-gram glucose solution and then you get your mm-hmm. um, blood tested at one hour and then again at two hours. So I completely understand that, you know, it, and if anyone's been pregnant before, fasting on its own is really hard work when you're pregnant. Yeah, that makes- is disgusting in and of itself. Yeah, it can make people feel very, very unwell. And then when you add 75 grams of glucose on its own, (laughs) it can make people feel very, very, very sick. So, and it's also difficult on the level of like, if you have work commitments or if you're looking after other children, you have to sit in a lab basically for three hours. So I understand, I appreciate that it can be a very difficult test. I've seen a lot of women who can't, who like don't tolerate the solution. So they vomit back up again and therefore we don't really have much data to go with. So yeah, it's not the perfect test, but I, I guess on a population level, they can see the benefits to it in that it is standardised, it's well studied, it's not too expensive, and it's it's used in lots of countries, so we can use the data to compare against other other places. So I guess it was also used in that study that I was telling you about before, the HAPO study. So I guess like many tests, it kind of can suit the population, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it suits everyone. And I guess what you don't know going into it is, you know, the pros and cons of of the test. You just kind of told you have to do it, but that's not actually correct. You don't have to have have it. So I'll, yeah, I'll move on to that hemoglobin A1C that you were referring to before. Mm. So basically that's a test that measures glucose and hemoglobin joined together. So it's like red blood cells and glucose joined together. Mm -hmm. And because red blood cells alive in our body for about four months, that hemoglobin A1C test gives us an indication of how much sugar has been in the blood over the past few months. So think of it like an average blood sugar level for the last three to four months of your life. Yeah. So this is a test that's used very commonly outside of pregnancy. So we see it for diagnosing type 2 diabetes, for example. Its use in pregnancy is very controversial controversial, and it's not currently supported by ADIPS, which is kind of like our Australian or Australasian um, pregnancy society. 
Diabetes and Pregnancy Society, sorry. So why is it so controversial? Yeah, well, first of all, because as I kind of mentioned earlier with the diagnosis of GDM, the way our body utilizes or metabolizes sugar changes a lot when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. So H, this HbA1c is really only relevant if tested in the first trimester. Mm-hmm. Now, mostly because we don't really have, we don't really know how to interpret the results later in pregnancy. So yeah, just because our blood sugar levels actually run differently in pregnancy to non-pregnancy. So that first trimester hemoglobin A1c, however, is a really, I, I think it's a really important test and I would, would like to see it done more, I would like to see it standardised across all women in their prenat- first prenatal bloods, as you were referring to. And the reason for that is because it because it measures this kind of like three to four months, it gives us a really good picture of what is happening already to someone's insulin resistance. Yep. So if we see an elevation in HbA1c in those first trimester bloods, it's basically telling us that someone has already got a level of insulin resistance going into pregnancy mm-hmm. and therefore their chances of developing gestational diabetes are quite high. Gotcha. So I think that uh, that 98, 98.4% accuracy that you were referring to was a study that showed that was kind of looking at HbA1c results in early pregnancy and then comparing them to the glucose tolerance test. Yes. So what they showed Mm -hmm. was that if someone had 5.9% or higher as their hemoglobin A1c, it predicted GDM 98.4% of the time. So that's a really, that's a very strong correlation. Uh, And there's many studies that show similar correlations to that. There was one in New Zealand only a few years ago that had very similar results as well. So I guess where this test is most beneficial is picking up early prediabetes or early GDM, I guess you could call it either one. And that's, yeah, that is really important because as we mentioned before, many women, you know, that one of the most common questions is, will this go away after I've after I've had the baby. But if we know that someone's already got insulin resistance going into their pregnancy, there's a high chance they're going to have it afterwards. And telling someone that, no, your, your GDM is going to go away when you finish, when you've had your baby, and then them finding out, you know, three months postpartum with all the other things going on in postpartum that they do still have insulin resistance is, is quite a shock to them. So mm. yeah, I get, it's it's a really tricky one. I can see the benefits of HbA1c and I would love to see it being used more. The obstetrician that I work with always tests it in early pregnancy. Oh. I know. It's amazing. Um, and so, it's, find so it's it on so the helpful. agenda already. It is. Yeah, it's already on the agenda. We just don't have very reliable – I guess it can't actually replace the, the glucose tolerance test. So there's still women who will test who will come up normal in the HbA1c, but then two months down the track, once they're in, once they're well and truly into their pregnancy, into their third trimester, they're developing insulin resistance then. So it will never replace the glucose tolerance test because otherwise we're going to miss a whole lot of people. Sure. But it can definitely has the potential to you be used as an early diagnostic tool and therefore those women, you know, what, what, what we could see in the future is that if their HbA1c is already elevated in early pregnancy, we, we could potentially see that they wouldn't have to do the glucose tolerance test later in their pregnancy. So I think that's where it's got more potential. Yeah. Is there yeah. an opportunity that if your HbA1c came back as, you know, a high probability, yep. 
Is there an opportunity for a woman to look at her diet and lifestyle, and we're going to touch on that very shortly, and make changes? And if she kind of focused on that, is there a possibility that she wouldn't develop GDM? Yeah, yep, yep. So, Oh, my um, God. (laughs) Okay, put it on the panel, people. (laughs) Like what are we – this is what I don't understand. Why are we putting women through glucose testing, which is absolute rubbish, why are we not empowering women at the beginning? You're taking our blood anyway. You may as well just run the extra lab. It's no skin off our nose. Like you've already got the blood. And if there's an opportunity to completely mitigate against, as we were saying, the shame, the guilt, the chain, like all of these things, why are we not doing this? And I understand, I get it, the glucose testing is the gold standard, but surely we can look at this and go, can we not have a new gold standard? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm Like 98.4% is pretty high. Yeah, pretty, yeah, very, that's exactly right. So I should probably also mention that um, if someone in that first trimester, if their HbA1c came back as over 6.5%, which is diagnostic of type 2 diabetes outside of pregnancy, they would actually get a diagnosis of diabetes in pregnancy, which is different to GDM. So that's pretty standardised. That's a completely different bucket, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have seen that once in clinic where someone actually, their HbA1c was extremely high and it was actually just that we picked up a full-blown type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Yeah. So that's a little bit different. So uh, the way that I see it is if I get, if I have someone come to me with a slightly elevated HbA1c, I believe it's my responsibility to tailor their diet from an early point to be more beneficial of their blood glucose levels to prevent them from getting the gestational diabetes, I guess, yeah, later in their pregnancy. So I wouldn't necessarily say to someone, oh, you're a really high chance or I don't know, Mac, maybe I'd say that we might need to, you know, work your diet so that we maximise your body's ability to moderate your blood sugar level and we're going to start doing that as early as possible to prevent any um, adverse outcomes later on Mm -hmm. is probably how I would frame it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But you're actively doing something like you've received a result, you're actively doing something about it, which I think is good. Can women request their HB1AC on their testing? They can. Okay, ladies. (laughs) It's a very inexpensive test. I am seeing it more and more. So I would say probably 70% of the clients that I see in clinic get their initial pre uh, their initial prenatal bloods done through their GP before they get referred to the obstetricians mm-hmm. and then the other 30% the obstetricians are doing the initial bloods so when it comes from the obstetricians that I work with the HbA1c is there when it comes from the GP I'm probably seeing it in about 50% now which is okay. which is great the other the other diagnostic criteria that we're seeing more of is Coming out of that HAPO study, going Mm -hmm. back to that again, they also basically said that a fasting plasma glucose level of more than of 5.1 or equal to 5.1 in that first trimester bloods is also diagnosis of GDM. So 
there, so some people in those initial bloods, it is a fasting, it's usually a done fasting and everyone will get their glucose levels tested there. So sometimes I might see someone who, who is only, say, eight weeks pregnant, but their fasting blood glucose level came back at 5.5. And so they've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes straight up. So they won't get a GTT later Yeah, in most of the cases. Or some of them will then get sent to an earlier GTT. I've heard so, that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we're sending you earlier. It's so, like, oh, God. Yeah. So my, my, my response to that, and I, I do this a lot as well, is I will just talk to, like, the obstetricians that I work with and we've got a very good relationship where we um, where I might actually just give them a um, blood glucose level monitor mm-hmm. so that they can just do some home testing. Because at the end of the day, whether you've got the title or this diagnosis, really we just want to manage the levels. So if someone has high risk factors in early pregnancy, like the HbA1c or like a fasting glucose level over 5.1, what I would probably say is, well, why don't we just do some tests at home? Let's do your, you know, test in the morning, test after a meal. And if we can keep those levels within range, then, you know, then, then you're doing, you know, that's kind of where we want to be anyway. And if those levels are going high, then we'd treat it as gestational diabetes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, Phil, everyone get the HB1AC. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other reason is um, it can be very hard to, like in early pregnancy, people are so like needing of their carbohydrates and they oh, plain salty food. I'd nearly turned into a potato gym. Anyone that has, li- has listened to my episode of my birth pregnancy and birth story on episode three, potato gem yeah they are definitely a winner that equals severe constipation ladies (laughs) it is just the worst that's actually what i complained about most the constipation yeah it was awful pleasant is it but i think sometimes like adding adding to first trimester when you already don't feel when you really want those plain salty carbohydrates to then have to try and manage you know, the diet for or the way of eating for to manage your sugar levels can be very tricky as well. So yeah. I don't even know what the right answer is. But, yeah, definitely HbA1c I think is an extremely beneficial test to have in early pregnancy. Yeah, agreed. Now let's talk about diet. Let's talk about food. Say Excellent. someone has got the diagnosis of GDM, yep. what are the types of recommendations that you would make? And we get, the caveat here, everyone, is that Renee, and tell me if, like, fact check me on this, but the reason why we love you is that you have a very similar um, train of thought as our lovely Lily Nichols, who we find as our bit of our, our muse. Oh, she is wonderful. I'm, I'm stoked that I got put in the same sentence as her. <laughs> And Lily is like rocking the boat when it comes to diet and nutrition. And she has a book called The Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Can you walk us through what your recommendations are? Because my understanding is that there seems to be a focus on carbohydrates in terms of the guidelines for a GDM diagnosis, whereas I think people like Lily advocating for more of a protein-rich diet? Yep, yep. And What are your um, thoughts around this? Yeah, I um, I guess I, I, ha- I don't have as much experience as Lily does in um, lower 
carb diets in gestational diabetes, but it's definitely a big area of interest for me and something I would like to do some research on in the future. So basically, yeah, sorry if I explain this in a wild way, but carbohydrates are the macronutrient that will directly increase your blood sugar levels. So fat and protein are the other two macronutrients and they do not raise your blood sugar levels. So essentially we need to pay attention to carbohydrates when we, uh, yeah, when when you've got a, any type of diabetes diagnosis. Now our current conventional nutrition guidelines, um, as you may be aware, Renee, are basically they suggest a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates if someone has gestational diabetes. Doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, when, if you go back to our original diet, like definition, that it, it actually means glucose intolerance in pregnancy. So why would you then feed a woman a lot of it? glucose? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> it's like you're um, setting women up for a fail. Yeah, I know Lily often harps on about like you know did the you know the women didn't fail the diet; it's the diet that failed them, and yeah. I I completely agree with her in that. So. This is a, it's actually very old and outdated information. It, I, I did try and trace it back at one point. It came from some American RDIs. I think what they did was estimate, you know, the carbohydrate intake for a normal person, added some extra carbs in there for pregnancy, <laughs> added in some extra carbs there for fetal brain development, and voila, we ended up at 175 grams. Oh. So. So scientific, thank you. Yeah, very, very scientific. <laughs> so that's kind of where it comes from. But um, there's also like this lingering fear around fats just in the mm. in the general nutrition space, which needs a lot of work. And there's also a fear of ketosis in pregnancy. Yes. So there are other reasons why we've got this kind of higher carb intake for GDM. But... What we now know is that a lower carb diet, which isn't even that low, but mm-hmm. lower than that 175 grams, we now know in the research that it is safe in pregnancy so long as we're meeting the total caloric needs. So, you know, if someone is in some sort of like starvation state and you're not giving them enough carbohydrates, then yes, it can be very dangerous. But if we, and I guess this is why seeing a dietitian is so important, especially with GDM. So, so if we're meeting their total calories through protein, fats, and a lower amount of carbohydrates, then there's, there's no risk to mum and bub when it comes to ketosis and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I also find that a lower carb diet, especially if we're focusing on a nutrient-rich diet, will actually assist in meeting their micronutrient needs as well. Because yep. a lot of, a lot of don't get me wrong, some carbohydrates are wonderfully high in nutrients. But some don't really provide us with many micronutrients. So if we remove those ones, which are more like your refined kind of grains and things, Mm -hmm. then we actually have more of a chance of meeting the micronutrients of pregnancy. So most of my clients I see in clinic tolerate anywhere between maybe 90 to 150 grams of carbohydrates a day. We Focus, I focus a lot on those, as I said before, those nutrient-rich carbs, which are low, low GI, which, yeah is basically things like your dairy and your legumes and some of your whole grains, those sorts of foods. So yeah, that's, that's one side of things. That's the carbohydrate side of things. And you'd like, you'd be happy to know that I have spoken to many other dietitians who also do not, are falling away from that 175 grams a day. So we are seeing a shift to a slightly lower carb intake. We just need more research. So unfortunately, 
to get ethics for a study to properly evaluate a lower carb diet is just next to impossible, which is why most of the research for diabetes in pregnancy is around the GI of the ethics is much easier to approve. So we do know that lower GI foods, I think, can, you know, reduce, ha- have a very good impact on blood sugar levels. So, okay. yeah, I'm all for that as well. But we've also got to take into, a fact, into account that it's not just carbohydrates. So carbohydrates are one thing, but there's many things that influence our blood sugar levels, um, many other nutrients. So fat and protein, basically, and fibre and acidic foods, they mm-hmm. will actually lower that spike of your blood sugar. So... Let's just say I was to eat a piece of toast on its own. You're going to get a decent spike in blood sugar and a decent drop. But if we were to add some fat and some protein to that piece of toast by, for example, adding some avocado and an egg, even though you've eaten the same amount of carbohydrates, you'll actually see a much less rise and a much less of a drop. So Mm -hmm. fat and protein, fiber and acidic foods are very beneficial to make part of your meal when you're eating carbohydrate foods. So I focus a lot of that uh, a lot on that with my clients, making sure they're always combining their carbohydrates with other foods. I love that so much. We've done a little bit of content around that, you know, make sure that you pair your carbohydrate with a fat, for example. And I see it with my daughter. So we typically have a hot breakfast in the morning, so it'll be mm-hmm. eggs, with toast and, you know, maybe some bacon and avocado or whatever. Delicious. I know, it's so good. (laughs) People are like, oh, my God, how do you have the time? And the reason why I make the time is because I think, and I not I think, I know the research shows that if you set yourself up for a good breakfast, high protein, Mm -hmm. it's a snowball effect for the rest of the day. There's less like ravenous snacking. And I have noticed in my daughter, and she's four and a half, nearly five now, that if we have just porridge and I'll like try and throw in like flax meal and peanut butter and things like that, where it's kind of plant-based protein, Yep. She will spiral yeah, very yeah, easily and she will be starving for like a morning tea almost at like 9.30, which normally she'll be a 10.30 kind of 11 o'clock morning tea kind of gal. And that's where I was just like, no, we're not doing porridge for breakfast anymore. If anything, I do a porridge for like lunch or something yeah, like interesting. that. So I – and if she has an apple – I'll always put peanut butter on the plate. Yes, always. yes, I'm like a huge fan of apple and peanut butter. I love it. <laughs> it's like the easiest snack ever, <laughs> except for it's not a good lunchbox snack because peanuts and nuts and allergies. Yes, of course. And all that kind I know of stuff. the nut so thing I'm, is very annoying, isn't it? I'm, yeah, I'm new to this whole lunchbox thing this year and I'm like, what do you mean we can't have nuts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know my life without nuts would be dismal. But also um, with what I find fascinating is like a lot of conventional nutrition is still focusing on like low fat dairy and oh my you know, God. lean meats. Cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. I just find it, it's so interesting when I when I see a client and they'll tell me that they're, I don't know, for example, using skim milk. And then when we, I, I'll ask them a reason and they'll say, oh, you know, I just thought that's what you were meant to do. And then when uh-huh. I explain to them and show them how fat and protein will affect your blood sugar level and that's why you know I want you to have your full cream milk because we're actually getting more fat there and that's actually going to lessen the spike in blood sugar they kind of just look at you like 
oh my god that makes so that much, much sense. sense like yeah. why yeah there's because Lots the of- guidelines still say, I actually, and for all those playing at home, I forget Lily's number episode off the top of my head, but we spoke about that. And I have like this conspiracy theory around, <laughs> you ready? Around carbohydrates <laughs> and Australian guidelines and things like that. Because years ago, they were like, okay, neural tube defects are an issue. What are we going to do? So they started putting, is it folate? folic acid acid into bread Mm. and cereals and it was like fortified and so they were like okay lots of people consume that so let's just whack it all in there and then hopefully we'll see a reduction and we'll all be okay and so to me that's why the health guidelines are all around oh have your porridge or have your toast and then have a sandwich with your skim milk and i'm like no get your roast meat and your veggies and your <laughs> eggs on toast and pimp it up with like protein and fats and all that kind of delicious stuff because that's going to keep you fuller for longer and then you can get the folate from like you know, plant sources and things like that, or a really good multivitamin um, as well. But that's my conspiracy theory around. Like, I checked the other day; they've it, yeah, still it definitely got plays a role. Skim milk on the dietary guidelines. Mm, get mm. get away from the skim milk, people. <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots that we could we could Bang talk about now. there, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess just to finish on with the like diet for women with gestational diabetes is just going back to the fact that we do like always need to make sure that it is very individualized care. Yes. Which is why that 175 gram, I just think is completely not individualized. So, you know, there are situations where I might see someone who actually might not benefit from a very, very low or from a lower carbohydrate diet. Mm -hmm. And that might be, you know, vegetarians or vegans might really struggle to meet their protein or their micronutrient needs if they are reducing their carbs too much, because a lot of them rely on legumes and dairy and whole grains to meet their protein and Mm -hmm. other nutrient needs. So that's kind of like a group of women who might benefit, who may not be able to go as lower carb, I guess you could say, you know, and you do still see athletes who are pregnant or very active women, and they might need a few more carbohydrates. Some women, despite the gestational diabetes diagnosis, when they test their sugar levels, they actually can tolerate a decent amount of carbohydrates. So for women like that, if they're testing regularly and their sugar levels are in the normal range, then there's no real reason for them to continue to reduce them unless their insulin resistance is getting worse. So that's another reason why, you know, all my clients are testing, you know, most of them three to four times a day and writing down what they eat and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and some people are just so overwhelmed with the diagnosis that they literally can't take on anything else. They yeah. they find it, especially if they were grown up where food wasn't central to them and they, you know, to cook eggs in the morning is seriously not yeah. doable for them. Yeah. So yeah, I guess all those things need to be taken into account, their physical health, their mental health. And at the end of the day, we do have, you know, other lifestyle things. Did you want me to touch on those? Yeah, that'd be good because, yeah, there is such a focus on diet, but Mm. we need to look at it from a holistic perspective as well. So, yeah, lifestyle alternatives, sleep, like how does that all Yeah, 
Exercise is a big one. So when we move our body, our muscles will literally take the glucose from our muscle and move it, I mean, from our bloodstream and move it into our muscles. So you will literally lower your blood glucose level from exercising. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we need to be, it'd be great if we could get a bit more of a focus on that. It's easier said than done. I know some women are in a lot of pain in their pregnancy and telling them to go for a half an hour walk every day is, oh my God. you know, they just look at me like, are you serious? Yeah. Especially <laughs> so, in those later stages. Oh my God. hundred percent. So looking at other things, it doesn't have to always be like walking. It could be swimming or walking laps in the pool. I also understand that when you're working full-time, it can be very difficult when you're tired as well. So I guess exercise has a really big potential to help with your diabetes management, but there are lots of hurdles. So I, I understand that as well. There's also, you know, a bit of research into things like vitamin D and magnesium. Mm-hmm. They have a bit of an effect on insulin resistance. So yeah, you might see some research looking into supplements or that people who have a deficiency of vitamin D have, yeah, there's a higher chance they'll get gestational diabetes. So it's another little thing to look into. And then sleep and lowering kind of stress and anxiety. So those stress hormones actually will spike your blood sugar levels. So I know that's another thing that's easier said than done. Like getting a good night's sleep when you're pregnant is next to impossible. And then (laughs) when you have a newborn, it's also next to impossible. So yeah, but they do they do play a role in our blood sugar levels. And of course, you know, medication is it's wonderful that we have medication to help help with this as well. So some women will need medication early in their pregnancy and other women won't need it at all, and it's not a measure of how well or how you know, it, it's not a reflection on how you have done things, it's just your body and how your hormones are reacting a lot of the time. Mm, that's amazing. I love all of that. So yeah, just not completely focusing on on diet yeah yeah definitely is a big one but it's not everything I am gonna wrap up with a rapid fire Renee are you ready oh that makes me nervous (laughs) everyone gets so nervous what is it it must be my tone here are you ready to rumble okay are you ready I'm ready what what was your top tip for birthing mothers? Did you receive something from someone or someone said something to you and you're like, that is gold? Or maybe, oh, I didn't think that that would help me, but now looking back, that was amazing. Or like just generally as like yeah, when like I was pregnant? Yeah, what, what was kind of like if you had to pay it forward in terms of a piece of advice or um, something like that for, for birthing mums, for pregnant mummies? Oh, um, oh no, I'm so bad on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Just, um, like taking, probably trying not to compare yourself to other people. Maybe my, I was very fortunate. My sister was pregnant with her third when I was pregnant with my first. Oh, so it was amazing, but it really helped me because she just had such a different approach to it. Whereas when you're pregnant with your first, you really think everything is the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, every test or every, I don't know, every every niggle you mm-hmm. think is, yeah, you probably over overthink it. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's really something that will help other people, but 
having my I, sister go yeah. through her third pregnancy at the same time was just so helpful for me mentally to just be like, oh, no, I'm okay. That's all good. And do you know what that speaks to, Renee? That speaks to the village that we have lost. Oh, 100%. 100%. It really speaks to the fact that, you know, back in the day, we were all together and we would see our sisters, our aunties, our cousins with children at a very young age. And, you know, maybe we weren't, you know, mindful of exactly what was going on as children, but we were exposed to it. We could see it. And then once we were pregnant, you know, we would have those elders around us who, like your sister, who would be like, ah, oh, you're fine, you're good to go, or oh, actually, <laughs> you should probably investigate Pull that a bit up. further, or, you know, just having those people who've walked in those shoes before us is such a game changer. I think. Yeah, 100%. And even different to like a mother or an auntie where yes. like she's actually going through it with me as well. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely finding a village even in pregnancy is very important as well as postpartum, I think. Agreed. Totally agree. Um, did you have a go-to resource? Like was there a book or a workshop or, you know, did you read any books during pregnancy or like what was your go-to? Yeah, with my first to be honest, I was so, so busy at work and I felt like my social calendar was also extremely full that <laughs> I, I, I felt really like, um, like I had all these things that I wanted to read and wanted to do. And it wasn't until I went on maternity leave at 36 weeks that I actually got to um, any of it. So <laughs> when I was, yeah, when I went on maternity leave, I ended up having about seven weeks, uh, no, about five weeks off. And that's when I read heaps. I read a lot on like active birth and uh, calm birth. Um, once again, I focused a lot on the birth and not mm-hmm. on the actual postpartum. postpartum. Um, but in saying that, because I love cooking, I also was cooking heaps and freezing a lot of food. And my mum was bringing me a lot of frozen food. Mm-hmm. I actually had to t- t- tell my mum to take food home one day because <gasps> my freezer was absolutely chock a block. <laughs> Said no mother ever, Renee. I know. My family is so obsessed with food. It was, like, ridiculous. Like, my freezer couldn't close properly. I was like, Mum, you're going to have to take that home. (laughs) Are you you European? (laughs) My mum, yeah, we've got Italian in us. Oh, there we go. So Mika is Italian and I'm I'm Maltese. So oh, we always yes. we always joke with our clients, you know, we don't know how to cook in halves. Like um, no, when I literally can't even cook for four people, I cook for eight. Yes. <laughs> because we also have the philosophy cook once, eat twice. Same. Oh, I love that so much. Well, Renee, what I would have suggested if I was your postpartum doula was just <laughs> if you can afford it, purchase a second freezer. <laughs> Yes, I know, I know. I, I, I would love a second freezer, actually. It's a game changer. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I might. <laughs> mine's, mine's stocked with, like, bone broth and soups mm. and dals and really strange bits of meat, yep. I would say. Like, everyone, everyone's got, like, roast lambs and things like that. I've got, like, chicken feet and lamb's yeah. necks and, you know, Hashtag doula life. <laughs> yeah, I think I've even got some chicken hearts in my freezer at the moment, Ooh, which is super random. <laughs> they are very high in iron. I would. They are. That, they are. That's why I'm experimenting with some recipes, actually. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Please let us know. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you keep on your bedside table? Oh, um, I can see it from where I am, actually. Okay. <laughs> and it is a mess. Well, the normal things I keep on there are a lamp and a photograph of my husband and I on our wedding day. Yeah. And a book. But there's also my daughter's Ventolin puffer, my daughter's book. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's about it, actually. <laughs> what, are, what are you reading at the moment? You'd well, like to I'm share? In between, no, I'm in between two books at the moment because I'm in a, I do a book club with some of my friends. Yeah. So I'm currently reading The Educator, which is a book club book. Okay. It's a by um it's a true story. But yes, I'm I'm behind. We actually had the dinner for it a week ago and I was only halfway through, but I'm determined oh, to finish done it. Your homework, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> um and then I'm pretty I'm also into some Jeffrey Archer series at the moment as well. Oh. So yeah. Lovely. <laughs> I, I love a woman who has like two or three books on the go because they yeah. speak my language, lady. There's, there's also a cook. There's always a cookbook on there too because I oh. like to read cookbooks for leisure. <laughs> What's your favourite meal to make? Like if you Ooh. if you if you've had a really shitty day, okay. If you've had a shitty day, what would be your like? And let's not make it like your cook. Oh, you like cooking, but like, what would you like to come home to and, and be cooking? Oh, I. I am a bit of a sucker for like a really good bolognese or like a osabuco sauce yeah. with pasta. Yeah. Do love my pasta. <laughs> yeah, it would probably be something like that actually. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. With like a glass of red wine? Are we yeah, wine definitely. Like, yeah. Okay. Definitely a red wine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. I You're have welcome. learned so much. As I said, hand on heart, I didn't know a lot about gestational diabetes and it has affected a couple of my friends and, mm. yes, they have been a bit panicked in the moment of like, oh, my God, I'm just a shitty mum and oh, the baby hasn't even arrived and we're really failing and I'm just like, calm your farm, people. I'm sure we can fix this. I'm a fixer. <laughs> can you tell? <laughs> Yeah, so, I think yes. good support and everything is just, yeah, so important. So, yeah, there's a 100%. lot of, there's just so much to, to, to learn. And, yeah, I'm still learning every day something about gestational diabetes, I think. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Renee. I appreciate it. And You're welcome. I, Thank I you so much for having me. I suspect this will be just a part one. There will be definitely other parts <laughs> to this. I, I'll, I'll, I I'll come back know. anytime. <laughs> All right, then. Thanks so much for your time. Goodbye. Thanks, Renee. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.